0: Net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broggi. Dr. Broggi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogie. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is
1: not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to The Bible Line. Maybe you are a very first-time listener here at 88.7 FM and live streaming through the internet uh, at wagp.net. For the next hour, we take questions. As you've been studying God's word, maybe there's a particular issue that you've faced in your Christian life or ministry or your study of scripture and if we can help by God's grace we will all you need to do is pick up the phone locally again it's 8435251859 our toll free number is 877 W A G P the call letters 980 or you can email us here directly into the studio and the email address for the Bible line is tbl at wagp.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, and we do give preference to live callers, or you can simply dictate your question to Deb in the uh, studio next door. And she will shoot him right here to us in this studio. As always, Rick, it's great to be here. A lot of email questions have come in. Uh, so let's go ahead and we'll jump in by God's grace with
0: both feet. Very good. Charles from St. Helena Island writes, after listening to your message on tithing, I have a question. I now have a better understanding of tithing and its importance. Also, I know how the borrower is a slave to the lender with that being said, I'm trying to pay down some debts. I'm currently giving an offering every month, but I'm unable to give my full tithe. Would God want me to give my full tithe and pay the debts with what's left over or concentrate on paying the debts off so I would have the money for the full tithe? Thanks for your guidance. Well, it, it's a great question. And, you
1: know, tithing is one dimension of God's whole package on finances in terms of what he teaches us uh, by Uh, The last Wednesday in April, we are planning a brand new series on Wednesday nights that I will be teaching the Wednesday after Easter, and it will concern biblical finances. And we will go through all that the Scripture says. And what you discover very often is that sometimes people view tithing as kind of a silver magic bullet and that if we tithe, all of our finances are blessed. Well, I will say that when people start tithing, the way they save, the way they go into debt, everything typically changes. It just makes them so much more alert to the fact that it's God's money that they are using. But we still need to understand the principles of, in terms of what God says about saving, what God says about debt. And so sometimes people walk into the Christian life, and they've lived basically under the world's principles, and they've accumulated a lot of debt. I have I, no doubt a lot of people listening to me as I speak. We have gargantuan debts. I'm not talking about, you know, an investment like a home uh, that potentially appreciates, but I'm talking about, you know, just credit card debt, junk debt, appliance debt, things that you should have never gone into debt on. If you can't pay your credit card off 100% in full every month, you're really living under the world's principles and not God's. And that's why this course is going to be so important for many to attend. But understand, when God speaks of the tithe, it is not simply something for the Old Testament, as some of our dear brothers would try to convince us. I believe it is applicable for today. That's why for over 1,900 years of church history, there was only one view, and that is tithing was not just for Israel, but for the church. And the reason for that view was simply that tithing was commenced as part of God's moral obedience law to the believer ever before the law came. So, you have uh, Abraham, who lives a few thousand years before Christ, and Abraham was one indeed who tithed. He gave 10%. That's what the word tithe means. It is a term that is loosely used today. Someone gives, you know, $10 and they say, well, here's my tithe. Well, it is a tithe if your increase that week was $100. But sometimes we just use the term tithe in reference to any amount of money that we give. But actually, it is a mathematical term in both Hebrew and in Greek. It means one-tenth. And if you couldn't uh, read Hebrew or Greek, you could figure that out just by reading the Genesis account in the Hebrews accounts, where uh, in both those two accounts, Abraham gives a tenth, which is also called a tithe to Melchizedek. In either case, um, tithing Uh, is mentioned also under the law in passages like Malachi chapter 3. This is an interesting text. God asks a question, and there's a series of questions that he asks through the prophet Malachi. And he asks them in such a way that he anticipates the answer, and so he responds accordingly through his prophet, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And, of course, their response would be, well, how have we robbed you? What do you mean we've robbed you? We, we wouldn't rob God. And God responds in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. To be cursed with a curse did not mean that God hated you. It meant he actually loved you. It was an expression of his discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 12, quoting the book of Proverbs, And then God says, um, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in it, food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And then I will rebuke the devourer. The devourer was God's curse. That was God's discipline on them for their disobedience. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed. You'll be a testimony to the goyim, to the Gentiles. You, they will look at you and say, God's hand is over those people. And so the tithe is a tenth. They were robbing God in tithes and offerings. So there is an assumption that above the tithe, a person could give an offering at times. God doesn't specify how often, but the starting place is the tithe. And so he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Uh, So a tithe is a tenth. And so when you say, well, I'm giving the offering, but not the tithe, one, we may have some definition issues here, but for the sake of argument, assuming that you understand an offering is a tenth, you start with the tenth. The offering is above the tenth. And so there were many opportunities where a Jewish man or woman could give above the tenth. Uh, sometimes, for instance, even in the way they cut the corners of their field, God said, Hey, remember, there was a time when you were aliens in a land, and I took care of you and blessed you. And, and he said, Likewise with the aliens in the land of Israel. Uh, There will be aliens and widows, and so when you cut your fields, don't cut them right to the very edge. um, Leave a little bit on the corners and on the edges so that the widow and the orphan can come through the field and find something to eat because they didn't own land, and yet they were not going to be given the food. Uh, They had to go out and still work. They still had to reap, but you had an opportunity to give God an offering, for instance, in that one expression. And I suppose how big the corners of your field were and how wide the edges were were an expression of your generosity. But you started with a tithe. You brought a tenth into the storehouse. And of course, this is an agricultural setting. And so if you had 10 bushels of wheat, you brought one bushel to the house of the Lord. And it was used accordingly. So I would say this to you you've obviously maybe painted yourself into a corner and you've got all kinds of debt. But if it were me, I would want to give a tithe and it doesn't belong to my radio ministry or focus on the family or family life ministries or any other parachurch ministry. It belongs to your local church wherever you are attending. So you bring a tithe into the storehouse. Now you can give offerings to other places, but your tithe belongs to the local church. And I would start there. And uh, I would ask God, too, to help me to pay down my debts. And you need to have a plan to do that because you didn't get into debt overnight. And you're not going to get out of it overnight. But to continue to rob God, I think, would be a mistake. And many times people you know, will bring their budgets into uh, a financial counselor, and they find what they call leakage in the budget. Uh, well, I have a cell phone I'm spending $125 a month on. Well, you don't need a cell phone. I suppose you could have a flip phone and you could spend $35 a month and you could use the difference between those two numbers to pay down your debts. And so there's a way to pay off debt and you need to have a plan. And these are the kinds of issues that we cover in the financial course. And so if you're not able to attend beginning Wednesdays after Easter here in 2019, you might want to uh, consider uh, listening to those messages as they're posted online. The notebook will be quite extensive. It will be like 140, 150 pages, and I think it will be very, very helpful to this person. So that's a great question that this uh,
0: individual has asked. 843 If you have a question on today's Bible line... Adriana from Naples writes, First, let me say thank you so much for what you do. My husband and I have grown very much through your ministry. My question is on the passage in Genesis. I've been rereading about Lot's salvation. Was Lot saved? When I read this passage, I get a little confused. I know that salvation is not lost but I wonder what Lot really saved due to his lifestyle and how he responds to even the angels when they go to his family. He was clearly a lukewarm Christian, if so, but someone told me that Lot was saved due to Abraham's intercession on his behalf. What is your biblical perspective on this? Was Lot saved because of Abraham or was it because he was truly saved? I know no one can save you but Christ alone. Hope that all makes sense. Thank you.
1: I think so. So what I am taking here is that you're not saying just because Abraham prayed for Lot, Lord, I want him to be saved, that that automatically made him saved, independent of a decision of the heart. Obviously, that would not be true. A person cannot uh, pray someone into the kingdom; they still have to make a decision. You can pray him into the kingdom in the sense that you can ask God to work in their life to orchestrate the circumstances to show them their need that they have for a Savior but they still have to make a decision with the heart man believes on to righteousness, the Bible teaches. Now, certainly when you read the Old Testament account, uh, you read Lot, and he's got some real problems. Obviously, he he begins by uh, living outside of the city of uh, Sodom. And eventually he moves to the close, close to the city. And before he, he's done with the end of his life, he's in the city and he's a leader in the city. He, he's the man in the gates, which meant he was one of the city councilmen, so to speak, to use modern terminology. Uh, lot, of course, has to be almost convinced, you know, to get out of the city. Uh, he's not immediately responsive um, when he deals with his own sons-in-laws. Uh, they think his life is almost a joke. and They they laugh. They think he's jesting. That's the kind of spiritual authority he had even in his own family. And of course, even after he gets out of Sodom, uh, his daughters think, "Mm, we need a man to give us children. And so they get their dad drunk and have a incestuous relationship with him. Uh, One, if he hadn't gotten drunk, he would not have had that incestuous relationship. So there's a lot of compromise going on in this man's life. And two, you have to realize these are Old Testament saints and they're not always, you know, stellar in terms of some of the decisions that they make. Uh, You know, you have uh, David with a number of wives. He could have been um, like Joseph where he had only one. He could have been like Moses where he had just one at a time and not multiple wives. But David, you know, disobeyed God. And yet still he's called a man after God's own heart in light of all the sin even the sin of murder, multiple murders that he commits. And when, of course, uh, there's a need for a temple to be built and David wants to do it, God instructs very clearly through the prophet, no, he's not the one. He is not going to build it. There's too much blood on his hands. So the hardness of the heart under the old covenant is different, and we live in a different age today where under the new covenant we uh, have the Spirit placed in us, and two, there's a new movement of restraint on sin in the world today that is in some ways unique to this age through the coming of the Spirit of God, even in the lives of unbelievers. So the expectations are much higher. But when you come to the New Testament, it becomes plain. And you might not think this from the Old Testament, but the New Testament definitely nails it down in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, or Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, this is a chapter that parallels the book of Jude. In both both authors, both the Apostle Peter and the um, Apostle Jude, are dealing with the subject of apostates. And the Bible warns that false prophets also arose among the people, speaking of the Old Testament age, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. And so there have always been false teachers, and there always will be. But Second Peter 2, in the book of Jude, warns us how to spot them in the church because they enter into the church under the guise of Christianity, but they're not true Christians. And God reminds us that their judgment is sure that if he did not spare angels when they sinned, and if he did not spare the ancient world during the time of Noah, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he, Lot, saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds." Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. So Lot is referred to three times over with the adjective dikaios. It refers to a believer. Lot's righteousness was not something he earned. It's something that God credits to a man. He's righteous Lot. And even righteous Lot, because he had come to know the Lord, and I'm sure, no doubt, that God responded to the prayers of Abraham, who cared deeply for his nephew, cared for him so much that he risked his own life in a war to protect him from potential death. So he loved his nephew, Lot. And I have no doubt that Abraham, the father of the faithful, prayed for him. But Lot, at some point in his own heart, made a decision for the Lord. And that's why he's called righteous Lot. And he shows some avenues and expressions of righteousness. He didn't disobey the angel's command and turn around and become like Lot's wife, who became a pillar of salt. He didn't do that. She's lost, she's gone, she's perished. She disobeyed what God said. But righteous Lot obeyed, at least in that expression, and even while he was living there in Sodom, the Bible says his his insides, his his soul. The immaterial portion of Lot was just torn up because he saw the wickedness around him. Now, he, you know, made peace with it in some respects. He should have gotten out of the city, but he didn't. He decided to set up shop there, probably no doubt became successful, so much so that he's an elder in the city and didn't want to give up the business and all the profits he had made. Um, But still, he lived with an inner torment, and that's the way it is when you're out of fellowship with God. Interestingly, when Jesus describes his second coming, he describes it on two levels. He reminds us that the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. But then in the same breath, he said, it will also be like the days of Lot. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus never spoke on the subject of homosexuality. That's a lie. That's not true. He defined marriage by, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. God made them distinctively male and female, and he made them that they might be one. And so God affirms the marriage covenant through God the Son. And he also reminds us that God brought judgment on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Why? Because he was displeased. Jesus, in quoting that, says what he thinks about the sin of homosexuality. So when United Methodists vote on this issue this week, they should have nothing to vote about. They should say the Bible is clear. God has not stuttered. He has called this a wicked sin. And we should turn from it. But, you know, people say I'm relentless in dealing with this subject. I have to be because it's a relentless issue that is coming to the surface. I was just listening this morning, driving in uh, to Fox News, and they were interviewing a, a young woman who's at a major campus in Iowa. And on that campus, 30 groups have been sanctioned because they put some restrictions in terms of who can be members. So if you're a Christian group, like her group was uh, businessmen or or business people for Christ or whatever they called it, Christian business people. And uh, this is an undergraduate group. And they are teaching, you know, biblical principles on how to be a Christian leader. But their group is sanctioned on that particular campus, as groups are all across the country now, because uh, they put restrictions in terms of who can lead. And so this has been true with uh, a number of Christian ministries uh, because they will not allow uh, gay people into the leadership. They do not say gay people cannot come. Uh, True Christians will let anyone come to their church, but it's quite another thing to allow someone to be a member or someone to be a leader when they deny biblical principles. And that's what's happening on these college campuses across America. Why? Because they've made this not a moral issue, but they've made this kind of a social status issue. This They would say this is an issue of social justice, that this is a, a minority status issue. And um, it's not. It's a moral issue. But if you make it a minority status issue, like you're discriminating against black people or Chinese people or Filipino or Japanese people, I get it. But God does not make this a racial issue. God makes this a moral issue. And so God warns us that the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Lot, days of moral perversion. That is our day. And it's a chilling day that we are living in. So Lot is a righteous man. He's a believer. You will meet him in heaven. Um, And unfortunately, uh, he was a man who was compromised, and unfortunately, because of that, he lived less than exemplary life, and he lost uh, everything he worked for. And there are some Christians like that at the judgment seat of Christ who are living a compromised life, and when their works are tested with fire, they're going to be consumed with fire, because they are wasting their lives, and that's very foolish.
0: 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line— Rick from Lancaster, Pennsylvania writes, "Would you please explain sabbath keeping for Christians today? There seem to be different views. Some use Colossians 2:16 and 17 and Romans 14:5 where sabbath keeping is a matter of spiritual freedom, not a command from God. They also state that in the early chapters of Acts, the early Christians were Jews and when the Gentiles began to receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ," The Jewish Christians weren't sure which traditions of the Mosaic law they, the Gentile Christians, should obey. That's in Acts 15, 19, and 20, according to Rick. In these verses, the Sabbath day was not mentioned for the Gentile converts. The Sabbath day was set aside as a day of rest, and Christians used that day to come together and worship. I've always felt that this is still applicable for today, but others point to some of the above verses and say this fourth commandment is not applicable for us today, would you please clear this up for me? Well, it's a good
1: question, and sometimes you'll often hear people say, well, nine of the Ten Commandments are re in the New Testament, and so the Sabbath has no application for today. So let's think our way through that. First, the word sabbat in Hebrew just means to rest. It means a cessation from labor. And in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day on sabbat, God rested. And so um, you find, uh, even to this day, Jewish people observing the seventh day, the Sabbath. Biblically speaking, is not the first day of the week. Though sometimes we refer to Sunday as the Christian Sabbath, but that's a little bit of an oxymoron uh, because the Christians, as we'll let me address in a moment here, they worship the living God every day but especially they gathered together on the first day of every week so i turn to the book of exodus and i'm in chapter 30 uh, 31 and i'm reading here from verse 16 and god there says so the sons of israel shall observe the sabbath to celebrate the sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant it is a sign between me and the sons of israel forever For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So this was a covenant that God made between himself and the Jewish people. And so very clearly, God expected the Jewish people one day in seven to rest. Why? Because in six days, he made the heavens and the earth. And by the way, in God saying that, you have really here divine commentary on the days of creation. There are Christians today who want to make the days of creations, you know, millions of years long, or they want to have big gaps between 24-hour days, or, you know, they want to spiritualize the text because they're trying to make the Bible fit into science where science says this world is millions and billions of years old. But the truth is, is that there's only 6,000 years of recorded history, period. We don't have any history that goes beyond 6,000 years. Why do you suppose that is? I mean, why don't we have history that goes back 30,000 years or 50,000 years or 100,000 years? Because this world is about 6,000 years old, uh, based on the, the account in Genesis and so the days of creation are literal 24-hour days. How do I know that? Because God, through Moses's pen, as he's inspired by the Spirit, for all Scripture is given by the breath of God. It's God-breathed. He tells us, as he looks back on the days of creation, the the reason we rest one in seven is that's the creative pattern that God had given, and he rested not because the omnipotent God was tired, but he was teaching man a critical prin- principle. And so you first read of the Sabbath in the opening chapters of Genesis, and then you know you don't hear of the Sabbath again for 2,500 years until Moses steps on the scene and he writes the first five books, and God regulates the Sabbath. So let me just first say that the Sabbath observance was a sign Between God and the people of Israel. And that's restated here. I've turned to Deuteronomy 5. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord also commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It was a time to remember God's deliverance as well of what he was going to accomplish in bringing these enslaved people for some 400 years. Now, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So when you come into the New Covenant, the New Deal, uh, the New Testament, so to speak, uh, there are some critical points that we must remember. Number one, every time Jesus' time of appearance is recorded after the resurrection, it's on the first day of the week. Now, we know that he walked on the earth for some 40 days after the resurrection, and then he ascends to heaven on the fortieth day and ten days later on Penta fifty, Pentecost, on the feast of um, the completion of the feast of weeks, the Spirit of God and fulfillment of prophecy and type comes. But whenever the day is actually mentioned, it's always mentioned as the first day of the week, whether it's Matthew twenty eight or Mark sixteen or Luke twenty four or John twenty, it's always the first day of the week. When you see the church going into The synagogue on the Sabbath, on the seventh day of the week, uh, from uh, throughout the Acts and so forth, it's always for evangelistic purposes. Remember, Paul said, I became all things to all men that I might win some. To the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win Jews. Uh, We support a missionary in Israel. And he's uh, about an hour north of Jerusalem and they meet on the 7th day of the uh, on the 6th day of the week they have a service to reach Jewish people they're trying to do Jewish evangelism and so that is a strategy that they have you become all things to all men that you might win some and so it's interesting too when you come to the 18th chapter of acts and i have a message on this in my series on acts there's a point where then there's total final rejection by the Jewish people, and then Paul says, "From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." And the Sabbath is never mentioned again. Uh, as you uh, come to some New Testament passages, again, it's very, very clear in Acts twenty and verse seven. We read, "In the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread." Now, remember, Acts covers thirty years of church history. Uh, Acts one through seven, two years. Acts eight through twelve. 13 years, and Acts 13 through the end of the book, another 15 years. How do we know that? Because Luke, who is a premier historian, leaves all these little historical date markers so that you can date the book of Acts covering 30 years. So when you come to Acts 20, you're towards the end of that 30-year time frame, and it's a clearly established principle that the disciples the believers are meeting in the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul urges the Corinthians on the first day of the week, let each of you lay aside something uh, uh, up in store as God has prospered you. So they gave their tithes, so to speak, and their offerings according to the way God prospered them because he prospers us all differently. So one man's tithe may be different different from another man's tithe, but 10% is 10%, but they gave that on the first day of the week. So, again, I I don't think it's by accident. On the seventh day of the week, God finishes the work of creation. On the the first day of the week, God finishes the work of redemption. The work of redemption is completed when our Lord Jesus gets up out of the grave, and without the resurrection— There is no redemption, because the resurrection was God's proof that Jesus was Lord, that his substitutionary death was received as a sinless person, and that death could not hold him in the grave. So he gets up out of the grave on the first day of the week, and it's on the first day of the week in honor of the Lord of the Sabbath, who can regulate the day in which his people meet. And so understand, you know, some Seventh-day Adventists and others say, well, you know, the Roman Catholic Church under Constantine, where the Roman Catholic Church didn't even exist then, but still, they say Constantine, you know, being a Catholic and so forth, he regulated the Sabbath, <coughs> and he changed the day that we should meet on to the first day of the week from the seventh. And so you have Seventh-day Adventists. That's not true. You find it in Acts chapter 20. You find it in First Corinthians. The church is meeting on the first day of the week. That's just just poor assessment of church history, putting it together with what God's Word says. Now, I do find it interesting when we come to the millennial reign of the Messiah, and we'll study this some in our series in Revelation. I know the spot came on just before the thing that we're almost done with Revelation. We're actually a little over halfway, so we still have quite a ways to go in the book of Revelation. But with that said, still, um, I would just say that uh, when we come to the millennial reign of the Messiah, we will see that God's people, Jew and Gentile alike, will go back to worshiping on the seventh day. We know that from Isaiah 66 and from Ezekiel chapter 36. Um, while it is true that the Sabbath is not restated in the same way in the New Testament, it is applicable in terms of how we express our worship. Now, understand, certainly, there's no doubt that when God gave the Sabbath commands uh, in terms of a cessation from labor, I mean, they're spelled out in a number of different ways. Uh, On the Sabbath day, you couldn't build a fire. You couldn't cause anyone else to work. Um, My son sent me this thing the other day on a light switch that Jewish people use so that they don't have to flick the switch there in Israel. I was uh, in a Jewish home Uh, in january in israel and we're walking up the back steps of this apartment complex and it was totally dark they obviously did not have the technology and he said i'm sorry you know we can't turn the light on why because you're creating a spark and you're lighting a fire and you can't turn it on and i had brought him a flashlight a really nice flashlight that um You don't need these weird batteries that cost, you know, more than the flashlight itself. But the light intensity was incredible. And I went to turn. He said, don't turn that on. He said, we can't light a flashlight on the Sabbath day. I said, okay, I'm sorry. I get it. Uh, That's work. So what's interesting is when you come into the new covenant, remember you have 600,000 people who are in slavery. Uh, that's, uh, excuse me, 60 million people who are in slavery. That's a lot of people, 60 million people in the Roman Empire. And so when did the church often meet? Often at night. Why? Because they had to work during the day. Now, there came a time as slavery was lifted and you found the church meeting more and more on Sunday morning. And of course, in colonial America, we typically met at 11 o'clock. Why at 11 o'clock? Why did that become the hour in which the church met? Because it was after the first cow milking schedule. And so the first schedule of milking the cows was completed. And there's a lot of things that we do, and sometimes we don't know why we do them. You know, I know when I first started going to evangelical churches in the 70s, when they had the Lord's Supper, they would have this sheet, and they would put it over the Lord's table. And then you'd have these two elders or deacons, and they would lift this sheet, and they would fold it in half, and then you would see all the elements exposed. Uh, exposed in containers that were covered. Why did they cover the sheets with a sheet? Because it went back to the days of farming in America where there were flies in the sanctuary and they wanted to keep the flies off. And so some things were just carrying on by tradition. So there's nothing necessarily sacred about 11 a.m., but the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is a sacred day. And very often, because so many had to work on the seventh day, uh, they met at night, and so you see the Apostle Paul in the Acts meeting at night. Um, so, what you do find, what I do find interesting here in the Book of Ephesians, chapter six, where Paul is dealing with really um, one of these Ten Commandments. Uh, in here, he's dealing with the subject of honor your father and mother, and he says, honor your father and mother. Uh, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Um, So it's an interesting command uh, because it's slightly different from the way it is stated in the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. If you go back and you read it in Torah, it says that you may live long in the land in what land? In the land of Israel. But now because God's people are an international people uh, of Gentile and Jew across the world, he says on the earth. And so it's the same principle, but it is a slightly different application. And so the principle of worshiping God in a concerted way one day in seven is a very important principle that has not changed. But the application of that principle has changed. And so uh, we meet in the first day of the week, the Sabbath. um, Paul says this in Colossians, which is a passage you reference. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or of a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And so he's dealing here with Gentile Christians who were largely being criticized sometimes by Jewish Christians and saying, why aren't you observing the Sabbath? And so there was this uh, jagged line that, uh, a solid line that became a dash that became kind of a blank in terms of transition. And so when the Jews are saved initially in Acts 2 and in Acts 4 you have thousands of new believers, they're still gathering on the first day of the week. They're all new believers. They've been gathering, excuse me, they're gathering on the seventh day of the week as they've been doing for thousands of years. But as time progressed and God gave new revelation, they moved from the seventh day to the first day, and they only keep the seventh day for evangelistic purposes. And so Paul is just reminding them, he said, look, all of these Old Testament." Uh, expressions. They were a shadow of something of greater substance. And so the Sabbath day where God rested from his creation was a shadow of God ultimately resting and finishing the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, we are new creatures. And so the substance belongs to Christ. So I will say that we still need to worship one day in seven God calls us to do that on the first day of the week, and we would be wise, too, not to work seven days out of seven. You can do that, but you can do it for so long, and after a while, your body will begin to break down, and you will pay a price. Um, So you need to be with God's people on the first day of every week. Let's go on to the next question. I think we have a live caller who's been waiting.
0: We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
1: Yes, good morning,
2: gentlemen. My question is... uh, about a lot of preachers say, "Well, Book of Revelation talks about something if your names can be written, uh removed from the Book of Life." Other people say, "No, because God got to have a, an eraser." And like sometimes they say that, like those are overcomers. That that's not a it's not a threat, but it's an affirmation. What God's going to do is not going to do. It. So, can you explain that for me, please? Yeah, I'd
1: be happy to. Um, it's a it's a good question you're really addressing here. Uh, Christ's message to Sardis. Uh, The book of Revelation has three major divisions to it. If you're new to the Revelation, I think God in his wisdom gave us a divine outline so that we would not confuse how to interpret the book. And so he says, write the things that you have seen, past tense, and that's Revelation chapter 1. And he gives us a uh, vision of, of the exalted Christ there in heaven. It's a magnificent vision that he writes on, and uh, it's worth your study uh, because it gives you a picture of what you will see when you see the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven someday. In addition, then he says, write the things that are, and he writes concerning seven churches, and then write the things after these things. And he states that twice uh, in chapter 4 and verse 1, so you can't miss it. Write the things that will happen after these things. And so you have chapters 4 all the way through the end of the book, the futuristic section of the book of the Revelation. So when you come to Revelation chapter 3, Verses 1 through 6, you deal with one of the messages that Christ gives to the church at Sardis. And it's an important message that he gives and an important promise. And you're referencing He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I understand that unfortunately, sometimes Christian people do not use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And there are over 150 passages in the New Testament that affirm the eternal security of the true child of God. And so if you have 150 plain statements that teach, once we are saved, we are saved forever. And we can never, ever, ever lose our salvation. And you come to 8, 9, 10, depending on how you count them, because some are parallel texts, just repeated a second time in another gospel. Uh, that seemingly indicate that you can lose your salvation. A good rule of thumb is you always interpret what is crystal clear in light of what might be unclear. John has affirmed the eternal security of the believer in the revelation. And not to mention, he does so more so than any other single author in all the New Testament and the Gospel of John and 1 John and Second John and 3 John, because John, of course, writes... Um, five books in the new Testament. So when John writes here, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. This is not some veiled threat that you can somehow lose your salvation. This verse doesn't even remotely imply that it's possible for a person's name to be written in the book of life and then not be erased. In fact, just the opposite is taught in this verse. God's Son is giving us an explicit promise that our names will not be erased. This verse teaches eternal security. Uh, It's a guarantee that the genuine, true believer in Jesus Christ cannot lose his or her salvation. I will une. Uh, A very strong um, negative in Greek, I will not erase his name. And by the way, that's the exact same construction that John uses in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, and I quoted it in my pastoral prayer on Sunday, and I will give eternal life to them, and they will une, they will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one shall shall snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, don't miss his argument in that verse. He says, I hold them in my hand, and my hand is held in the father's hand, such that they will never, ever perish, and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So, it's a, it's a double negative. And again, he he's, he's underscoring that our names will not be erased. And so, uh, this is a great promise, and he is simply affirming that the overcomers— And an overcomer is a true believer in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. 1 John 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so an overcomer is a person who's become a new creature in Christ Jesus. They've been born from above they've been born a second time, the old life has passed away, a new life has become has happened. It doesn't mean that they're sinless. It doesn't mean that they are perfect, though they have garments of perfection that God gives them as a gift. It's called imputed righteousness in the New Testament. But it does speak of a new direction, not perfection, but direction. And the promises is that a true child of God will never, ever, ever have his name erased from the Lamb's book of life. He will be confessed before the Father in heaven. And so that's how the term overcomer is used throughout the Revelation. You might want to listen to my message in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. If you don't have the phone app, you should get it. Search the scriptures.org at the App Store, and you can listen to all the messages that we've been preaching In the Revelation, they're online, and I go through this verse in great detail, and I go through a lot of supplementary verses in the book of Revelation that also affirm our eternal security And letting Scripture interpret Scripture. It is really just a less-than-faithful interpretation of Revelation 3, 5, and the rest of Scripture to teach from this verse that you can lose your salvation? It's a great question. I think we have another live caller, so let's go
0: to them as they've been waiting. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Yes. uh, I just want to first thank you, Dr. Berge, for all you do. Uh, You've made a really big difference in my husband's and um, our lives. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question. My uncle is a very devout Catholic. He's been a Catholic his whole life. He was even in a um, monastery for several years. And he's been he's in California, and he's been writing me letters back and forth. He doesn't have email, and we don't speak on the phone. And he's been writing me letters back and forth about um, there's only one church, and how do Protestants allow all these divisions? And then last time he said you know, what if if people understand Jesus' teachings differently, so you understand it one way and your husband understands it a different way and the Holy Spirit and all these different things. So he's asking me these very um, in-depth questions, and I, I know the answers to some of them. And he, he was asked because I was thinking about how some of the truths are basic truths that all Christians believe in, and then there's some that are, you know, a little more gray area and even scholars disagree in and things. But I, I just I don't know— um, if you have a resource or anything that I might be able to use or give him or I I just don't really, there's so many things he's, and I'm not really sure if he's just searching or he's trying to convert me to Catholicism.
1: Yeah, no, great, great question. Um, And obviously he has been deeply entrenched in Catholicism for the simple reason that he even served as a monk. Uh, It reminds me of Luther, who was an Augustinian monk. And of course, as he has seen the abuses in the church, And he is seeing all of this moral compromise and uh, people getting into the ministry through the sale of indulgences to make themselves rich and so forth. Luther knew there was something that was rotten in Denmark, or I should say in Rome, and uh, it caused him to go to the scripture and that forced him to post his 95 assertions on the door there at the church at Wittenberg. A book that I would recommend would be by Lorraine Bettner, uh, B-O-E-T-T-N-E-R. He wrote a book called Roman Catholicism. It's still a a classic work. It was produced in the 1960s, and there are many um, works that have been put out since then, I don't want to call them copycat works, but again, truth is truth, and all truth is God's truth, and the Roman doctrine really has not changed uh, since the Council of Trent and Vatican I, Vatican II reasserts everything that was taught at Trent. So uh, the Council of Trent, of course, was a council that met from 1542 to 1568 in response to Luther's 95 assertions or theses that he tacked there on the door at Wittenberg and and uh you know he um they basically go through point by point where they feel like Luther is off and where they are not where he's not consistent with the tradition of the church so what i'm trying to say is there's really nothing new under the sun when it comes to roman catholicism so Bettner's book though it's done in the 1960s is still a classic if you go to half.com um you know you can buy it new i'm sure at amazon for 25 bucks you can probably buy it for a dollar there plus shipping, and uh, you might even find one in a hardback, uh, one of the original editions that came out. But it's still a great work, and it will take you through step-by-step every major Roman Catholic doctrine. Uh, In terms of your um, uncle here, uh, he may be searching, he may not. I can still picture myself. I'm 20 years old. I'd only been a Christian about two years, I'm on a chairlift going up to the top of Killington Mountain in Vermont, and the fellow that is next to me is a guy who served as a monk in Spencer, Massachusetts. That was not far from where I spent most of my early years in Worcester, Mass., and uh, there there is a monastery out there, and I asked them the diagnostic questions. I hadn't refined them to the point of zero to 100. I was still using the what we typically call the barnhouse questions that uh, Kennedy made famous. Uh, I, I put it on a scale of zero to 100, but I asked him how sure he was that if he were to die, that I asked him if he were to die, was he sure he'd go to heaven? Did he know? And he said, no. And I asked him why God should let him into heaven if he were to die. And he said, I don't really know. He's, and then he went on to his whole Diatribe of serving as a monk and how disillusioned he was. As a monk, he expected to find peace there at that abbey in Spencer, but his heart was torn up on the inside. And, and I shared the plan of salvation with him. Now, whether he became a Christian, I don't know. I, I think that was a providential appointment that God put me next to him on that 20-minute ride to the top of that mountain, very slow chairlift, and I shared Christ with him that day, and I think God put him there for a reason. And it might be that your uncle is asking from a deep sense of sincerity, but sometimes, you know, rather than uh, get distracted on what I call Catholic side issues, uh, stay on the major things. Like this Sunday sermon, I think, would be really important for you to pay close attention to, Because I'm going to deal with some statements that the last three popes have made. And they are so antithetical to the Word of God that they both cannot be true at the same time. And again, I'm not here to bash Roman Catholics. I love Roman Catholics. That's my background, as you probably know. I was raised Roman Catholic. I'm not here to bash Roman Catholics any more than I am to bash liberal Protestants. But as a pastor, I'm called to tell the truth. And that's not hate language, that's love language. If you know someone is putting their faith in someone other than Jesus alone or something other than Christ alone, and if you're now teaching as the Roman Catholic more and more is affirming through these popes that there are many avenues to God which is in direct contradiction to what the Word of God teaches. I mean, even this cardinal who, you know, the cardinal of Washington, D.C., who has come out, and it turns out, you know, he has had a pattern of 40 years of living uh, a gay lifestyle, um, you know, living really a, a wicked life. And so, you know, what are we going to do with a guy like that? Uh, are we going to say he's a he's a wonderful Christian man? Obviously not. Uh, Cardinal McCarrick is either A born-again believer or he's not? How will you know? By their fruits you will know them. And so you've got all these videos of him, you know, speaking out against homosexuality in the sense that, you know, if anyone would harm a little child, you know, that's an evil and there's a hot place in hell for him. All the while, this guy is seducing young seminarians in these Roman Catholic seminaries as a cardinal, while all the while he has male prostitutes visiting him, all the while, he's even being accused multiple times of fondling little kids. You tell me, is he born again? No, he he's a lost man. He needs to be saved, yet he's a cardinal. He's right there, been there in the Vatican for all these years. And, of course, it's well known that it was a well-known fact that he had this lifestyle going on, but he raised so much money for the Roman Catholic Church, no one had the guts to say, we don't need your money. We need to honor the living God. So again, um, I would focus on the majors here where you have over a 1,000 Catholic priests in Pennsylvania alone that are accused of abusing kids. It's pretty bad. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us.